We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to. Empty backfield. Steed stepping up. Steed will try to run, gets tripped up. Troy Dye brings down Steed in his fourth down. Pocket collapses, pass, intercepted by Dye, off the deflection. Veteran able to rip this football out. Troy Dye, who's led the Ducks in tackles the last four years as a senior. It's a great run. I mean, Wisconsin's starting to get it going a little bit, but watch 35. Instead of tackling, he goes for the football and gets it out of there. And Oregon all over, they see the football, and Lenore has the speed. He almost gets to the outside, but a big game for Taylor in Wisconsin, negated by a fumble and a heads-up play by Troy Dye to rip it out of there. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger, and that was a combination of Roxy Bernstein and Brandon Yodden from Fox Sports Kirk Herbstreit of ESPN talking of one of the under the radar but not to be forgotten prospects in this year's linebacker class. Damn Chris, a Friday podcast, folks. We have a stacked show for you. We've got our linebacker preview. We've got talk about the wrap up of free agency. We've got Brandon Bean. We've got oh, Chris. We have so much to get over. Hell, I'm shooting for the George Thorogood trifecta tonight. Chris, it's a Friday, and it's been a long week. Well, yeah, it's been a long week because uh, you spent all week working from home. I work in the essentials, the essential service industry. You know, shit's got to get machined. So I've been going to work. I mean, it's got to be difficult for you being at home. First of all, folks, big shout out to anybody out there right now who's just uh, this quarantine stuff. Everybody's going through it. It's affecting everybody. It's affecting everything around the world. And so with that said, life is different. Things are, things are changed. And it's, it's weird how... It's just interesting, I guess, not weird, but interesting to see how, it, how everybody's handling it 
you know, every, people are handling it differently. And people are having very different experiences with it. I mean, Chris, what was your first week under quarantine? You know, the, the hey, no going out unless absolutely necessary. Even if you work in one of the essential industries, you come home, there's nothing open, there's nothing going on, there's no... Well, I mean, my Wegmans, you know, in West Seneca, we didn't have... They didn't have a whole bunch of meat for like the first couple of days. Last time I went, I was able to get a whole sheet of chicken breasts. But I had to go to Wegmans like three days in a row, and I wanted to, I wanted to like shoot myself with all of the people wearing masks, rubber gloves. Well, listen, everybody, like I said, everybody addresses this in their own way. I mean, it's crazy. Now, here's the thing I'll say to you. You at least get to, you, you get to drive your vehicle. Coming over here tonight was the first time I've been inside of my truck since last weekend. It felt weird. It felt weird being back behind the steering wheel of a vehicle. Yeah, did you know how to drive? Questionable. There were some potholes on your street that I was like, I'll just swerve and avoid these like I always do, and it was a little shaky. Not going to lie. Interesting. But nonetheless, it's, you know, I'm lucky enough. I should say that I'm lucky enough to have a job that I can work from home. I mean, it's been a, it's, I can't look a gift horse in the mouth on that, Chris. I can't. With that said, it's been an interesting week because not only am I working from home, but so is my wife, my very pregnant wife. And I are now coworkers, Chris, and it's like the odd couple. We handle things very differently. We have very different attitudes when it approaches how we handle stress. It's been a stressful week in terms of figuring out how to work from home when I've never done it before. There's all sorts of efficiencies you got to work through. Chris, I've been a man on the edge, at least for a few days. So you, well, you should, you should give our audience a lay of the land. Now you live in a split level, and you have like a small office upstairs, like. So I'm assuming you're in like your office area. Yes. Where is she? She is downstairs at the in the area where we normally watch all the sporting events and all that stuff. She's down there. <clears throat> so there's a full there's a full floor separating us. I'll say this. It's gotten better. It's better now. It's much better now that I have a beer in my hand. Tuesday she and I got into a fight over or at least I should say I got into a fight with my wife. Over a stapler. Now, Chris, as someone who's been yelled at by me over stacking... Have you seen my stapler? <laughs> as someone who's gotten yelled at by me when I'm frustrated over stacking folding tables the wrong way, you can, you can attest, for all of our listeners' sake, the fact that I'm not the most patient human being in the entire world. No. When, <laughs> when, when there's like a slow build to something, like you burst quicker than normal. And it gets, an, it gets annoying. Oh, it's, it's been an adventure, but it's, it's calmed down as the week's gone on. And Chris, the, the thing is, this is for now the new normal. Show, social distancing. It's all the rage. Get in on I've it. I've been doing it for years. And I guess that's my point. You See, Chris, I was climbing the walls all week. I shouldn't say that. I do enjoy the time I spend at home with my wife. But no, I think it does something to you psychologically knowing that you can't go out. You don't have the option. You know what I mean? Most Monday through Friday, most times, if there's no football on, it's outside of sports season, there's no softball going on, there's nothing happening, I'm just at home during the week because I'm not going to go out to a bar. I'm not going to go out and party on a weeknight. That sounds, that sounds ridiculous. 
at the same time, I like having the option to do so. And it's not until you don't have the option that you really realize how well-rounded you are as a homebody. And Chris, I'm not... I, I, it's been tough. Yeah, it's tough because there's no sports. I mean, you might find this interesting because over the weekend I did... Uh, I didn't watch anything new, but I did re-watch on Netflix both Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. <laughs> From 90 and 91. This is what it's come to, folks. Streaming services are seeing... Chris, I feel like you, you've been training for this exact scenario your entire life. Yeah, you've no, been avoiding people for the last 35 years. Yeah, none of this bothers. This is, this is normal to me. Welcome to my world. Oh, my God. I don't know how you do it, sir. You're, your mind works far differently from mine. But God bless you. And God bless everybody else who's handling this in their own way. You know, hey, bottoms up. So ultimately, as we move forward, <laughs> I just hope everybody's out there. Everybody's staying safe. Everybody's finding something to do with their time without sports. Chris, you have old Bills games recorded? Uh, Eric Harris, who listens to the show, he uh, sent them to me over Dropbox. So I have, I don't even know how, I'll have to look. But I, I do have a... A bunch of old games. I want to say I have at least 25 old games on my... Uh, when he says old games, folks, we're talking the 90s. Here. Yeah. I think 90s and uh, early 2000s. What do I got here? Uh, let's see. 30, 33 games. Yeah. That'll... All old, all old <clears throat> games. I get. I see ninety two AFC Championship game, uh, Seahawks and Bills. I think that's from like two thousand. I got the wild card game against the Titans. I don't know why I have that. See, folks, this just underscores some people in the face of impending calamity. Some people prep. In you know, some people are preppers. Some people hoard food. Some people hoard textiles. Some people hoard firearms. Chris hoards sports memories. <laughs> he hoards sports footage. <laughs> God bless you, man. You're a historian. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to have to get some of those from you before I leave tonight. You got it. Anybody else who's interested, give us a shout on Twitter at Report or shoot us an email, rockpowreport 716 at gmail.com. So, Chris, as we talk about my wife and I being the odd couple, there's another odd couple taking place out there right now in the football world. I think it's time we talk about it in this week's Bills News Update. Josh Allen and Sam Darnold shacking up and stacking up, Chris. Ah, there have always been iconic duos. We're talking about the odd couple. There's always been some frenemies that have shared a neighborhood throughout you know, TV history. Foghorn Leghorn and the Chicken Hawk. I'm thinking about Walt. I'm picturing Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon and Grumpy Old Men. Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> I just wish sometimes I could be as dumb as you are. I feel like life would be easier for me. <laughs> Hall and Oates. So in the middle of this pandemic that is currently affecting the country, it is kind of funny when you hear that Josh Allen and Sam Darnold, quarterback of the New York Jets, have taken up residence next to each other in Southern California. Chris, 
Doesn't it just sound like a bad sitcom premise? It does. Two quarterbacks, one zip code. Hey. <laughs> oh, Chris, they're not just sharing the same neighborhood. They're also apparently working out together this offseason. That despite the closure of facilities, and, and they've, I guess they've been going to a local beach and they've been throwing together. Yeah, I mean, they, well, they also do work with, uh, what's it, Jordan Palmer. <laughs> they work with him every Isn't offseason. It fu- is it funny to anybody else out there that somehow Jordan Palmer is the guy out there training he, he's the, the, the he's, quarterbacks of tomorrow? Yeah, he's like the quote-unquote quarterback guru for the offseason, yet he had a historically shitty career. But you know what they say, those who can't do teach. Yes. Not a shot at any of our teachers out there. Just saying. I think that's a thing across all sports, if you look at it. You know, Wayne Gretzky was never a good head coach. Uh, No, no, he was not. (laughs) So, it's just funny to me. They're out here, they're throwing at a beach, which has created its own jokes, Chris. I've seen things on Twitter in response to this, like, oh yeah, they go down to the beach every day, and they try throwing at the ocean, but somehow Josh Allen keeps missing. Thanks. Hilarious. You're you're real funny. (laughs) But Chris... They're throwing at the beach, but no one's able to tell us exactly whom they're throwing with. And they're apparently working out in Sam Darnold's garage that he's converted into a small gym. They've even thrown... To keep up with this whole sitcom idea, Chris, they even threw former Carolina Panther and now Washington Redskin quarterback Kyle Allen in as just like a third wheel for comedic effect. There's Sam and his girlfriend. Here's Josh and his girlfriend. And here's the wacky Kyle Allen who's going to sleep on the couch. Like, like, picture Dave Coulier. Yes. In, picture in, Dave in Coulier full house, in full house. Living in the alcove. That is exactly who Kyle Allen is in all of this. Chris, what are the odds? Chris, I feel like they need their own 90s intro montage. Yeah, to Full House. I'm, fi- I'm picturing Full House, Family Matters. What song would it be? Or Step by Step. Step by Step. Oh, my God. That's another good show. <laughs> what was it, Patrick Duffy? Yeah, Patrick Duffy and uh, Susan Summers. Uh, Susan Summers, yes. Yeah, Susan Summers. Summers. Yeah, step by step. What kind of steps? Three step, six step. <laughs> Ultimately, folks, this is this is a weird situation, but I kind of like it. I like the fact that Alan is working in the off season, that he's staying busy despite the fact that most of your traditional gyms and traditional training facilities are closed. Especially when you consider what's on the line for this coming season. I mean, not just... Chris, his development. The future of this franchise. It's all resting on whether or not he can improve as a quarterback. And everything that goes on here is great. Everything our team does to re- to build around him is fantastic. He's ultimately the guy. And so it's on him to continue developing. And I can see how... Chris, wouldn't you agree that... a a situation like this could really throw a wrench into a lot of these young players who are looking to take steps early on in their career. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of look at Trubisky in Chicago. I mean, they're already over him. He's, what, going into his fourth or fifth, fourth year? Because they got to decide on his fifth-year option. I mean... If... And how much better do you think a guy like that can get in a truncated offseason? So if he was terrible last year, and he has limited time with the team... Limited time with trainers, limited time to really work even on his own. What are the odds he's going to be any better? He's not going to be. He's not going to be that good. 
that's that's the fear. And so I'm I like it from a standpoint of he's Josh Allen is staying busy. He's working with somebody else who's just as motivated to hone his own craft. You know they phrase steel sharp and steel? Yes. Okay. Well the two of them working out together, watching film together, because all of the players, I mean, Tom Brady's talked ad nauseum, you know, as he's done the media rounds lately, about how he can pick up a lot of the offense just by watching tape. So clearly they have video and things like that at their disposal. So I'm sure there's a lot of video watching going on, and there's at least a lot of football learning taking place. And it's nice to be doing it with somebody who is also going through the same thing. Yeah, I mean, they were they came out in the same year. So, you know, they're... Uh... You know, I think Josh. I think Josh Allen could learn a lot from Sam as far as the mental aspects of the game, because I think I think Sam Darnold's more mentally prepared than Josh Allen. That's a bold statement. I'm going to make you defend it here because the next thing, the second thing to come out of all this, it almost seems like it was kicked off by the fact that this story hit the. You know, Chris, this is how slow the off season is with everything being closed. That this two quarterbacks working out became a headline in and of itself points to the fact that there is nothing going on. It's a wasteland for sports news right now. Yeah, I mean, we're basically in the middle of draft season. There's no pro days. Scouts can't go anywhere. So from this, a really interesting conversation that we're going to delve into, you and me right here, has kind of taken, it's kind of just been born out of that on social media. And I'm assuming it's a product of the boredom so many people are faced with during this quarantine situation. Which quarterback is on the faster development track, Josh Allen or Sam Darnold? So, well, those two players, Chris, may be thick as thieves. They may be friends. They may get along and be able to chum around in the offseason. And I'm picturing the two of them, Chris, wearing short shorts, jogging down the beach like uh, Apollo Creed and Rocky. <laughs> and Rocky Four, which I saw on Twitter, someone blasted Rocky Four as one of the worst movies ever made. I I've heard a lot of incorrect statements, but that might be one of the most incorrect statements. Yeah, that guy should take a punch in the stomach from Drago. <laughs> that movie's a national treasure. It is. But so with it, that's what I'm picturing these two are doing over here. They get along. Our fan bases clearly do not. And so we're obviously of differing opinion. In that, Chris, you pre-draft made me, or was it post-draft after he went to the Jets? Was that when no, you... No, it moved? was pre-draft when we had Schofield on. We had a, I made Drew a Seagram's bet that you, you took that uh, I thought Sam Darnold was good enough to get to the Super Bowl in, within his first five years of starting. And if he did you would have to drink a six-pack of Seagram's every year from the time Darnold went to the Super Bowl until he retired on each one of your kids' birthdays. So, Folks, that's an aggressive Seagram's bet. It is. It's one that requires longevity, diabetes, <laughs> but it's... It's, that's that's how strongly Chris felt pre-draft that Sam Darnold was going to be a superstar, that he was going to be an elite quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, but then when he get drafted to one of the most terrible franchises of recent memory because of their structure with their owner, their GM is never good. They're always I think that recently they've always fired their coach, kept their GM, and then fired their GM, and then 
They just they never do that in sync with each other. So there's there's no structure in that organization whatsoever, and it really hurts Sam Darnold. Well, and so I guess that's part of the thing here, Chris, because I'm I'm looking at their stats next to each other. If you look at the notes that I prepared for you, Chris, you're going to see because you know how much I love charts and screenshots and everything else. I threw this up there for you. Chris, if you look at Allen and Darnold's numbers over the first two years of each of their careers, somehow last season, Sam Darnold started, what, three fewer games? Yeah, he had mono. Three fewer games than Josh Allen and managed to throw, what is that, four more interceptions? Yeah. One fewer touchdown. Almost, they're pretty dead even on yards. So I understand where Jets fans are coming from when they say, well, he missed all those games and almost threw more yards than your quarterback, so he's better. And I understand where Bills fans are coming from when they say, well, you know, our guy doesn't turn the ball over like a fucking idiot every time he gets the opportunity. I mean, Chris, what is it? Six interceptions. After the three-interception performance against New England, Josh Allen had six for the rest of the year. Down the stretch for the final 12 games. It's better than almost any quarterback in the NFL, Chris. <clears throat> so with that, I mean, it's up there in the upper echelon, I should say, because obviously you've got guys like Aaron Rodgers who just never throw an interception because, I don't know, ever since he grew that mustache, it's like a cheat code for the NFL. You grow a porn mustache, you're just good at, you're just good at slinging the rock around. Well, Aaron Rodgers is, has exceptional accuracy. <laughs> so he, he can just throw the ball wherever he wants to. So ultimately, though, to your point, I think that that's a loaded debate in and of itself. Because the question shouldn't be which of these two quarterbacks has developed more. But I think which front office has done more to constructively help their young quarterback develop. Especially as they head into this all-important third year. Where the te both teams are going to have to feel really good, Chris. Really good about these quarterbacks. Good enough that they like what they see to warrant... Picking up that fifth-year option and ultimately extending the player. Now, we've seen it a couple times here, You're just in recent history. This year, Dak Prescott didn't have a fifth-year option, but the team wasn't really keen on giving him, just out of the gate, a contract extension. No, everything I've seen on the internet today, that they're close, and he's going to make like $35 million. But he forced their hand in tagging him. Yeah. Okay. Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston is out there on the market after his team took him number one overall in the draft. Yeah. Four years later, he's out on the street. Yeah. Did you read up on that Tampa Bay stat? They've never signed a quarterback that they drafted to his second contract. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. No wonder it's there's no bad. no wonder that Tampa no wonder Tampa Bay fans are so hard to find. Good lord. But with that, Chris, when you look at Sam Darnold and Josh Allen and you, you try to have the debate of who set their quarterback up for success this coming season, because ultimately this debate's going to get put to rest. Buffalo. Who's going to develop better? Who's the more developed quarterback and who's going to be the more successful quarterback? I think it's far and away the, our boys in blue. It has to be. Chris, here's a, synop a quick synopsis of the Jets offseason so far. They whiffed on most of the big-name and even mediocre free agents that they were rumored by the New York and the national media to be in on in terms of negotiations. 
they failed to land a proven starter at any of the offensive line positions that they had up in the air. And they lost more playmakers than they added. And Chris, it's, it's not like they went to sleep. Okay, last, last week the crickets dropped. That was gold. High five for that. Mm-hmm. Nah, we're not high fiving. Social distancing, sir. <clears throat> it's not like they just fell asleep at the wheel and forgot free agency started. Okay, they, they did add another solid Ravens linebacker in Patrick Unwasser. So now they've got C.J. Mosley and Patrick Unwasser, who used to start next to each other for the Ravens. They brought them in. They kept their sack leader from last year in Jordan Jenkins and brought in a few of you know, retained a few linebackers, brought in some DBs. But that wasn't the problem with the Jets last season. Their defense, Chris, the defense, if you remember, held the Bills scoreless for three quarters last year. Yes, and then Mosley got injured and game over. So, so that's the thing. That defense wasn't the problem with the team. Their offense... That's the issue. And their offense with Sam Darnold last year struggled to put up points. And I understand people will point, Chris. They will point to that three-game stretch where the Jets scored 34 points a week. The thing that gets lost when you're just box score scouting, their defense forced multiple turnovers in every single one of those games. If you take those three 34-point games out of the equation, which, again, were against bad football teams and fueled by a ton of turnovers by the defense... He averaged 16 points a game from week nine until the end of the season. Chris, he only scored 13 points here in Orchard Park against our backups in week 17. That's what this guy has going for him right now. Yeah, it's something that we've talked about since last offseason because, you know, we both had a ton of money to spend in free agency and it's, we decided to shore up our offensive line, and they wanted to get weapons, which is the wrong way to do things. And now the problem is it's going to get even harder for them going into this season. The Jets lost their number one wide receiver from last season. They kind of went panning for gold, just bringing in, uh, what, George, George Fant. Well, look at this. George Fant, we talked about how bad their offensive line was in their production. I mean, Le'Veon Bell had one of the worst seasons of his career like LaShawn McCoy, the year, his his last season here in Buffalo, behind one of the NFL's worst offensive lines, LaShawn McCoy had the lowest yards before contact of his entire career. Le'Veon Bell almost matched that number that he that McCoy put up behind that terrible offensive line. You know what the difference was? We only paid $12 million for that shitty offensive line. The Jets went out and paid $8 million to pull Ryan Khalil off the couch. How yeah. did that pan out? Yeah, and they didn't uh, They didn't even, I don't think they did a, a better job this year with Fant and McGovern and the... This Van Rotten. I mean, Chris, when you look at it, they bring in these guys, none of whom has a, a proven record of high level of play or success or even starts. Fant doesn't have a lot of starts to his credit. And Van Rotten, hell, that guy... He was out of the league for multiple years over the course of his career. Chris, I don't even think, I think he's barely a backup caliber guard. So if I'm a Jet fan, I'm not excited about that. I mean, these were all of the things that killed the success of Sam Darnold last season. Lack of quality targets to throw to. Lack of protection. Lack of quality offensive line play to allow the rushing game to support him. 
And so far, Chris, I feel like they've done more of a detriment on that front than they did to improve it. Yeah, you gotta get you gotta get your offensive line correct for your quarterback to work. And this year is But Chris, that's just, been a staple of Adam Gase's career. Yeah, he did was that in uh Miami. Look at in Miami. He had this great offensive attack and every week he would draw up these exotic plans and every single every year, by the end of the season, you're talking about how they missed the playoffs. And he would just point to, well, we had turmoil on the offensive line and our center. Chris, every year in Miami, and now every year for the Jets, Adam Gase has had an offensive line by the middle of the season that was playing guys who probably shouldn't be starting. Yeah, you can also look at what he did <clears throat> what he did in Miami, and now look what Tannehill did in Tennessee. So you can almost imagine if they tread water this year and go below 500, that if Gase gets canned, that's going to be a good thing for Sam Darnold. Meanwhile, if you look at what the Bills are building here, it's hard to argue that Brandon Bean hasn't done significantly more to promote the growth of our quarterback. I mean, he's traded for what the best wide receiver Allen has played with. In his, I mean, I'll give it to him. It's a short career. But in his, in his entire career, he just gave him the best wide receiver who happens to be one of the be- NFL's best in the areas that Allen struggled the most. Chris, that right there, that's, a, that's being a solid GM who's aware of what your player needs. They're bringing back all four of the top wide receivers from 2019 in terms of just snap counts. Anybody who played over 20% is coming back. They brought back the entire offensive line, which is, Chris, I mean, that's, that's a feat in, of it, in and of itself, to keep an offensive line intact through an entire offseason. That's rare now with free agency as aggressive as it is and with quarterback protection being so in vogue. They also, Chris, you look at what they've done on the offensive line. They didn't swing for the fences, but they now have experienced, proven NFL caliber depth at every position along the offensive line from end to end. For every starter, there is a backup who has started multiple games in the NFL. How important is that? Very important. When, you know, you get one of these offensive tackles or guards to go down and they're out multiple weeks, you got somebody behind them that can come in and start games. I mean, last year we were on the cusp of almost having to start Ryan Bates. Now, you're looking at this team going, I don't know who, Chris, I don't even know if all of these offensive linemen on the roster are going to make it out of training camp. Yeah, and I mean, you can also throw in uh, the facility. I mean, didn't we have one of the lowest injury rates? Yeah. As a team, I mean that also helps. So ultimately, when you look at what they've done to help Josh Allen, it's not perfect. I'm not. I'm not going to say that, but it's a far cry from some of the situations around the league, and it sure is hell better than what's going on over there in New Jersey. Chris, Darnold is going to be playing for with his third offensive center, his second left tackle and a wide receiver core that doesn't feature a single player that's ever had a 1,000-yard season in their career. Not one. It should be a no-brainer to people. Which of these two has the inside track on development? And I'd argue that they've put Josh Allen not just in a better situation than Darnold, but I'd take it a step farther than that. I think Josh Allen has been put in a better situation than any other quarterback from this draft class. 
I'm oh. going to let that breathe for a second, Chris. I think Josh Allen, out of his draft class, do I think that he's the best? No. Chris, do I think he's a th- – right now, write him a check for $30 million a year. No. But do I think that this football team has given him the best path to development and success over the, over the course of his career and heading into the 2020 season? You're goddamn right. Well, I would have brought up – I mean, I don't think it's going to last, but I would have brought up Lamar Jackson. Chris, I'll bring all of it up. How about this? Let me run it back for you. I think he's in a better position than Baker Mayfield. That's a given. Considering that he's had continuity under one head coach, he has one offensive coordinator building a consistent system. Okay? The team actually got him an offensive line and didn't just think expensive wide receivers could fix all of their problems. Chris... Mayfield threw 21 interceptions last year. That's how many interceptions Allen has in his entire career. Do you know what you blame that on? Protection and coaching. You know what they haven't given him? Even now, it's a question mark as to whether or not Baker Mayfield has enough protection and enough coaching to get the job done on an NFL level. Yeah, I mean, they signed Jack Conklin this offseason, and hopefully with their first-round pick, they'll take a tackle. You you would have to hope, because that's it, Chris. They have all the tools to be a successful team. Just no offensive line. Chris, the, the, the Cleveland Browns are the equivalent of, I'm trying to think of a linebacker who... I was just going to say Nate Geary's mustache. <laughs> no, because that's, that, Chris, don't insult the Browns like that. Come on. <laughs> don't ins- His quarantine mustache is god-awful. It's... Uh, Folks, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. We're, we're, I'll, I'll oh. yeah, yeah, he's on go Twitter. Go check it out on Twitter. Yeah, on Twitter at Nate Geary WGR is creepy stash. He's like a linebacker that has all the athleticism in the world, but it's dumber than a stump. They have all of the sizzle, but there's nothing there, Chris. They can't do it. It has yet to be seen if any of those players and the coaching staff that oversees them can pull their shit together and actually put a winning product on the field from one week to the next. They, they, even though they have the talent, they can't make it work. I'm, I'm, Chris, I, you move on. Jackson, you want to bring up Lamar Jackson in this conversation. Look at what his coaches did. Okay. A bunch of people probably did they probably did a spit take when I said that Josh Allen was put in the best situation. Listen to me, you sons of bitches. Yes, Lamar Jackson is the reigning MVP. His numbers are eye-popping. But we sat here on this podcast last summer and talked about the spreadsheet that I made. I tracked the fact that down the stretch in 2018, from the time Allen came back from his injury and from when uh, Lamar Jackson got installed as the starter, the contrast between Allen and Jackson when it came to successfully utilizing wide receivers, both in yardage and completion percentage, Chris, it couldn't have been a more stark contrast. And rather than trying to teach Lamar Jackson to grow his ability to use his wide receivers successfully, the Ravens just slapped a fucking band-aid on everything. And they bring in Greg Roman to engineer this wild offense, Chris, which, hey, I'm not going to knock him. It worked. They put up points. They won their division. He, hey, his quarterback was the league MVP. 
But Chris, it all revolved around the thing he was already good at, right? Throwing to the tight end. Yes, I specifically remember the 49ers game that we watched. I think it was our bye week. I remember you said at one point, you're like, I can't recall them throwing to a wide receiver yet. And I, It was like the second quarter. Yeah. And Chris, that's great. It'll clearly get you a lot of accolades and a lot of hardware. Right up until it blows up in your face because another stout defense showed up in your house. They went into Baltimore with you at home. They punch you in the mouth. And all of a sudden, your quarterback, his inability to utilize wide receivers properly. And Chris, when I say that, I'm talking about throwing on time rather than behind on crossing routes. I'm talking about throwing your out routes with a little bit of muscle behind them instead of floating them. Those were things that you watched in that Tennessee Titans game this offseason and went, holy shit, how is this guy the MVP? How is this quarterback the MVP? That's when it becomes glaring that all you did, you didn't try to teach this kid anything. What you did was you said, okay, screw his flaws. We're going to win now. We're just going to try to engineer something to compensate for them. But Chris, when the chips are down... You don't want something to compensate for your quarterback not being able to throw the ball in the areas of the field you're going to have to, specifically to wide receivers. Chris, I mean, I, we have yet to see, and it's going to be interesting to find out whether Jackson's coaches are truly going to develop him as a pocket, teach him how to throw from behind the line of scrimmage under duress with accuracy to his wide receivers. Because if not, Chris... They are, and it's going to get harder because last year, what, they, they've lost two offensive line starters, I believe? Yep. Two of their starters in their offensive line and one of their starting tight ends. I think it's going to be really hard for that team to replicate what they did last year. And then you look at, you look at Sam Darnold. I, I fail to believe that Sam Darnold will manage to improve despite a rapidly deteriorating situation around him in terms of personnel. Chris, like I said, I don't know if Allen's the answer, but everyone wants him to be here. I don't know that. None of us do. But there, Chris, there's almost, you can't make an argument that this franchise hasn't done more for their quarterback to make sure that he is, at least has every opportunity to become that guy. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a huge year for Allen. You know, he's going into his third year, and then we'll have to make a decision on that fifth-year option. So. And so with that, Chris, knowing that our GM, I mean, I'll say it now, has done the best job putting the pieces around this quarterback to develop. Not, just, not, not to be successful here and now, but to develop as a passer, because that's ultimately what's more valuable. Chris, if you put a 16-year-old in the Ferrari, yeah, you can drive fast, but I feel like that's what Lamar Jackson was last year. But ultimately, when it breaks down, you need him to be able to, you know what I mean? Yeah. You need that kid to be able to do something on his own, create, lead. Jackson couldn't do any of that. And he's the closest to upper echelon quarterback in this entire class. I think, I think the team has put him in a solid position to improve. And I think there's only one guy to, one guy to thank for that. That's our man, Chris. Our boy. Brandon Bean. Mr. Brandon Bean. Speaking of the job that our front office has done to build around our quarterback, 
as the free agency frenzy that occurred last week has kind of cooled down. We've all had a chance to take a deep breath and compose ourselves. And now I think it's worth taking a look. You know, I said we would, you know, once, once the mass hysteria had gone down. Take a look at the work done by the brass over at One Bill's Drive. And in particular, the work of our GM. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I would not be hesitant to do a deal now if it made sense. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Chris, the demeanor, the meme with the sunglasses, the contracts. There's no way this guy isn't a made man. Chris, what, what are the odds? I have no idea because I don't know of any of these second-rate signings that we've made over the last... I do know EJ Gaines because he was here. Okay, well, allow me to pour a little scotch here. A little Talisker Storm. Ugh. Mm. God, that's good. Smells like a damn campfire. Whew. Here's the thing, Chris. Our GM is a bad man. I mean, he must... I, I'm assuming that he just walks around... With the bad motherfucker wallet from Pulp Fiction? He probably does have one. <laughs> if not, he should. Because when you look at what he... I mean, first of all, let's just take a look at... Fa at first glance, Chris, face value, when you look at the Bills roster after two weeks of free agency. On the offensive side of the ball, the team is returning the same starting five offensive linemen for the first time since the 2016-2017 season. For the first time under Sean McDermott... He's going to have the same offensive line to a man as far as starters go. I feel like there's some value in that, no? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredibly hard to do. Huge value to have the same offensive line two years in a row. This is the first wide receiver core that the Bills have had since 2002 to feature multiple 1,000-yard wide receivers. Chris, do you know how long it was before that? Never? You're going back to the Reed Lofton era. That's how far back you have to go to find multiple 1,000-yard receivers on this roster. We have them now. We returned every wide receiver, like I said earlier, that played 20% or more of the offensive snaps with the addition of a what you would argue, Chris, is a number one wide receiver. Yes, right? yes. Wasn't that the thing that everyone that I heard pounding the table, oh, the Bills need a wide receiver. Oh, they've never given Josh Allen anything. Where are you people now? I feel like Russell Crowe in Gladiator. Are you not entertained? Are you people not happy yet? <laughs> Chris, the fact that anyone could look at that move and tell me that it was a poor one, I, I just, I want to throw things, Chris. You know I'm a man with a short fuse. Yes. They also have an offensive line that features what I'd say is a moderately talented starter at every position that Allen is already familiar with. But with this week's addition of offensive tackle, I should just call him offensive lineman, Daryl Williams, they now have a proven veteran backup at every single position. Now, I know a lot of people, you know, they panned that move. They're like, oh, he's old, he's injury prone, there's this, there's that. 
Well, here's this. First of all, Chris, he's only 27 years old, but people want to talk about him like he's ancient. Second of all, there's this from cover one. Offensive lineman Daryl Williams snaps by position. At left tackle, he took 169. At left guard, he has a 409. At right guard, he has 214. And at right tackle, he has 44. Chris, pretty doesn't, versatile. Doesn't that fly in the face though of this idea? Like I saw people on Twitter, oh, he's gonna be he's gonna be our right tackle. We got our right tackle. Chris, he's more of a guard. Yeah. He's played more he spent more time on the interior of the line. And when you look at it, his sacks surrendered by position. Five is a left tackle, two is a guard on the left side, four is a guard on the right side, and one is a right tackle. It's not bad. No. Now take, but again, it's another piece. Because ultimately, that's not a guy that you want starting for you. No. But luckily, the Buffalo Bills don't have that problem. We're talking about starting, what, Ford and, I mean, down the stretch, it was Ford and Secchi. Clearly, with these moves that they've made, they trust that they're banking on a Ford kind of leap in the second year. They're banking on him improving on that side. But with that said, Inseki wasn't terrible. And you still have him on your roster. Now you have another versatile offensive lineman. Combine that with Spencer Long, who's played both center and guard. Combine that with Feliciano, who's our guard. center and guard. Chris, we might have one of the, maybe not the, the most talented Maybe not the highest floor of talent. But versatile. But versatile and deep. That's that's our offensive line. Which, Chris... I'll take it. If you look at what's gone on here for over a decade, that's more than I thought I could ask for. On defense, you're talking about arguably, arguably the deepest rotation defensive tackle talent that McDermott has had here at his disposal in Buffalo. I mean, Chris... For the first time, generally speaking, in all three seasons here with Sean McDermott, they've only kept four defensive tackles at a training camp. I think they're going to have to keep five this year. Think about it. Star Latule, Oliver, Jefferson, Butler, and Phillips. How do you, who do you cut? You just signed three of those guys. I mean, barring a, uh, a pup designation... For those of you out there who don't know what that means, it's a physically unable to perform designation coming out of training camp for Harrison Phillips, which would, what, leave them till week six to activate him? I think, it's, would, week, I think it's week It's six. week six or they would have to put him on the IR. But they would be able to keep him on the roster under the, uh, under the pup designation. You're still talking about four talented former starters now rotating as your current starter. Chris... How is that defensive tackle group not nasty? Or at least doesn't, it makes you feel better than any defensive tackle group we've had here since Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean showed up. Yes, it looks good on paper. Absolutely, on paper. This is all hypothetical, I guess. The offensive line we've at least gotten to see play. The defensive line, this new group, you don't know what you're going to get out of them, but you've seen that they have a track record behind them. There's reps there, there's tape. Regardless of what people may think, Chris, about the cornerback two position, that's a widely debated topic amongst amongst Bills fans. They don't think the team did enough to get a true, quote-unquote, lockdown number two corner. Which, I get it. Teams, people want to see more 
more talented cornerback. But Chris Levi Wallace wasn't terrible, was he? No, he wasn't. Okay. He played more than 70% of the snaps last year, and our secondary was one of the best in the NFL. He was just bad against Cleveland. <laughs> he was bad. He was bad against more than just Cleveland. He got worked in that Miami game, too. He single-handedly might have kept Miami in that football game to begin with. It's the only reason it wasn't a blowout from Jump Street. But with that said, regardless of what your feelings towards that position are, not only are the Bills returning all five starting defensive backs that were the backbone of the league's, arguably one of the league's best passing defenses, with the EJ Gaines signing, you sign Josh Norman. What you're doing is you're bringing in again, kind of like the offensive line. You have depth that has started before in the NFL. That has started for you in the case of EJ Gaines. Was EJ Gaines the, the um, was that piece you did like maybe two years ago about uh, when he's on the field, we have like, we're 100 yards better. At Look at your fucking memory, sir. You know what? Cheers. I thought that was EJ Gaines. Social distancing and all don't touch me. Yeah. But cheers for you remembering that. In 2017, the year we surprisingly made the playoffs, when EJ Gaines was on the field versus when he was off, our defense was 100 yards of field position better, averaged out over the course of the games. Chris, it's incredible. Now, obviously the knock on him was never talent, it's his health. And that's why he's signing a limited, kind of, kind of a limited contract. But he doesn't have to be a starter. No. You're talking about a depth player at this point. Ultimately, Chris, the backbone of this defense just got deeper over the course of the, this last two weeks free agent signing period. And then, on paper at least, they've improved the consistency of their pass rush despite losing their two, what is it, two of their highest uh, rated players in terms of sacks. You lose Jordan Phillips and you lose Shaq Lawson. But you bring in guys like Mario Addison, who every year churns out nine sacks. You bring in a Quinton Jefferson with a, one of the top ten, you know, what is it, as a defensive tackle, one of the top ten wins a uh, what is it, pass rush win rate? Yes. Yes. You've made your pass rush more consistent and deeper than it was the previous season. Even though you lost two pieces that last season were critical to our success. As a fan, Chris, when you look at our roster pre-draft, you agree that we, we don't have a ton of areas of true weakness at this point. Um, for me, it's running back. Okay. I'd agree. I, I see three. I see running and tight end depth. How does it make you feel as a fan of a team that suffered? Chris, nothing short of, I mean, if they could call it malpractice, I'm sure they would. I'll call it gross negligence when it comes to the GM operation over the last 20 years. How does it make you feel watching what this front office is doing? It's incredible. I mean, as <laughs> it hasn't happened since the early 90s. And just to think if, you know, with the second and third round picks this year, you take a running back and a linebacker for depth because they don't have to, you're not asking them to start. I think we're in a great position to uh, have multiple playoff seasons in a row. I mean, Chris, I felt weird just saying that, but I feel like that's on the horizon. Here's what I'll say. Watching our front office build this roster over the last few years 
from the ashes of what was. I mean, the 2017 season surprised everybody. Yeah. And even then. You didn't think that that Chris, was. Chris, that was a year when people thought we were tanking. Yeah, you didn't think that that was going to happen because we got rid of Sammy Watkins. And... and then you watch Brandon Bean go deep. He went deep with the cuts. Yeah. And that team was bad. And you said to yourself, oh, shit. You know, you're watching a Sabres team here in Buffalo that tanked to, hey, we're going to get a great player and then we're going to rebuild it. And they've floundered ever since. And instead, you're watching a a guy go to the not even go to the bottom. I mean, his the worst team constructively that they've put together here was still a six win team, Chris. Yeah. And then from there they started building. And they went from six wins to ten wins. Ten wins to God knows how many. I mean, it's it's incredible watching them operate, Chris. And here's what I keep thinking. I swear to God, there has got to be an ambulance chaser out there somewhere. Somewhere that could help us as Bills fans file a class action lawsuit against people like Doug Whaley, Russ Brandon, and Buddy Nix. That's it. I want to see a lawsuit for malpractice as it comes to being a GM because I'm watching a guy who spent his life kind of climbing the ranks of NFL teams. He gets brought in. Chris, where... Where was our team as a franchise in hiring a guy who knew what the hell he was doing? We spent almost two decades failing to do this. And yet now that this guy's here and I'm seeing how, not that he's making it look effortless, but Chris, he kind of is. And in the face of that, I'm saying to myself, I want damages. If they need proof of it, I, they can have a scan of my liver. Okay? This is what the, this is what the malpractice at GM has done to me. <laughs> This is your fault, Russ Brand. I swear to God. <sighs> Ultimately, Chris, it's a nice roster. Not all world, but again, it's a roster that I'm proud of. And I'm, inc- I'm excited. And I don't know how people can't be. You know, I hear this thing online all the time from people who, you know, paint themselves as analysts, Chris. And it's a word I hate. Like you? Yeah, analyst. <laughs> You know what I analyze the bottom? You know what I analyze is the bottom of uh, 12 ounce bottles. That's what I analyze. <laughs> Ultimately, yeah. you know, everyone says, well, you know, you can't applaud everything someone does because otherwise you're just being a fanboy. Chris, I'm a fucking fan. I'm not an analyst. I'm just a guy who studies football, a guy who looks at trends, likes data analysis. All of these things. There's no, I, I can't, Chris, there's no way to criticize what this team is doing here. No, we're being set up for success over the course of many seasons. And at the same time, if you want to talk about Brandon Bean earning his moniker as a contractual gangster, this, this roster building is just half the story. <laughs> Ultimately, when you look at the way that they... When you look past the construction of this year's roster and what lies beyond that, this, this is where you get into the meat and potatoes of why I assume that when Brandon Bean just walks the halls and walks into rooms around one Bill's drive, everyone in the room comes over and kisses his hand. Like this is the fucking godfather. Chris, the Bills entered this offseason in the top 10 for total cap space. And yet Bean still found ways to create more through some savvy moves that, at, at the time, they were almost kind of throwaways. You know, you noticed them, but you didn't really 
you don't understand the impact of it. First of all, the Starla Tulule restructuring gives you a net cap savings of $5.4 million over three years, $1.75 million for 2020. I mean, you think about who Starla Tulule is. It gives him a little more job security for the next two years, but it saves us some cash. I mean, none of these moves involved extensions of contract, Chris. You look at Starr, he's not a game-changing talented defensive tackle, but he's a guy they're familiar with, and he's they're a guy that they're okay with. He's durable, but he has younger players who are just champing at the bit to try to take his job. Then they go and they restructure Tyler Croft. Gives him a net cap savings of $1.6 million for 2020 and voids the last year of his contract. He's a free agent at the end of this year. Chris, last season, Tyler Croft came in here and people were, some people were excited, some people thought it was a mediocre move. It went worse than anyone could have predicted. What, what he finished with six catches, 14 targets, and 71 yards. A single touchdown. Now, it was the game-winner touchdown. It was the game-winning touchdown of that Pittsburgh Steelers game. So I'll give him that. I'll give him a little credit. Did he get injured the first practice? Yeah, he got hurt the very first practice, which was the thing everyone was afraid of. Because, again, he's another one of those Cincinnati tight ends that just gets hurt all the time. Well, at least he didn't slip on a mat. (sighs) Why why do you always got to remind me? God damn it. And then they restructure Patrick DeMarco. Gives him a net cap savings of $450,000 for 2020. Doesn't seem like much, right? No. Okay, that that sounds like chump change when you're talking about NFL contracts. But every little bit counts. I mean, look at who DeMarco is. He's a locker room guy. That's that's what he's, that's his kind of label. Locker room guy. And a deep threat. (laughs) Chris, if I ever see him running... Running a wheel route downfield and our quarterback actually throws to him. Double covered. I'll pull the TV off the wall. <laughs> Chris, I'll pull one of my TVs right off the fucking wall and just throw it out in the yard. If I ever see that again. Chris, ultimately, he had no place on this team last year. He played 15% of all of our offensive snaps and 37% of our special team snaps. Now, when you look at this, for those of you at home paying attention... That's Brandon Bean chiseling an extra $3.8 million of cap space out of thin air simply by making these players an offer they can't refuse. Either accept some pay reduction or good luck out there on the street. Good luck. Go find work. Chris, anybody who thinks that that's small potatoes, consider how many players get burned by opting to try to force their way into free agency. Look at Melvin Gordon this year. Yeah, he brutal. held out last year. Brutal. Had a shitty year and ended up taking less as a free agent than the Chargers offered him last year. Now think if you're a Patrick DeMarco. You're a guy who has no quality tape to put in because you rarely played. Yeah. Your GM comes to you and says, hey, listen, I'm not going to fire you. Just, um, I'm just going to need some of that money back. Yeah, you're going to have to take a, a pay cut. Just gonna need, I'm just going to need a taste. I'm just going to need a little taste. What are you going to say? No. If you're Starla Tulele, you're an aging defensive tackle who doesn't get sacks or create pressure. Chris, are you making more than $8 million a year? Probably not. No. 
He went to these players specifically because they're over a barrel. And he knows leverage when he sees it. And you might even say to yourself, $3.8 million. What's the value in that? Well, I'll tell you what, Chris. EJ Gaines, Isaiah McKenzie, and Dean Marlowe. All three of those players combined are probably going to have a combined 2020 cap hit right around that $3.8 to $4 million range. Gaines doesn't have a track record that makes him capable of going out there and commanding a sizable salary. McKenzie, we didn't tender McKenzie at the original round because it would have cost the team $2 million. They weren't willing to do that, which means they're not paying him $2 million. Yeah, well, you should not make $2 million if all you're doing is jet sweeps. <laughs> and Dean Marlowe's a guy at free, free safety that they like. He's a special teamer they like. He plays a lot of snaps there. He's a guy Sean McDermott has a hard on for. And yet at the same time, Chris, we essentially just added all three of those depth pieces to our roster this year for free. Because Bean was able to have those, those conversations with agents and the players in question and come out of it with a W. When's the last time you saw a shrewd GM in Buffalo like that? When? I defy you as Bills fans to find me a shrewder GM than Brandon B. Tom Donahoe. <laughs> oh, I hope you fucking oh, my God. Tom Donahoe. I almost, I almost just... I want to spit on your kitchen floor. Like That's how... Angry. <laughs> I just want to spit on your floor. That's how angry... Just spit Coronavis on my floor, please. <laughs> and then, Chris, there's the outlook beyond 2020. Here's the thing. Everyone gets so caught up in, well, how much camp space do the Bills have left? What can they do? Oh, what more moves can they make for this year? Because I feel like so many people, and especially the average fan, get caught up in this. You get caught up in the moment. I understand it. It's... The, yeah, you get caught up in the moment every Sunday. Which, Chris, we've explained ad nauseum. There is Sunday, you know, is Mark... Uh, you know, Mark Smith. Mark, Mark Smith likes Mark to... Mark of the C. Mark C. He likes to point out there's Sunday Drew and then there's Tuesday Drew. And we are very different human beings. Yeah, Tuesday <laughs> Tuesday Drew is way better than Sunday Drew. Sunday Drew's the fucking man. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, irrational. Irrational, <laughs> maybe shirtless. I don't know. Yelling at the neighbors. Yes. It's all up for grabs, folks. When you look past this season, this is where you really start to get kind of the godfather feel about Brandon Bean. Well, yeah, because we have so much talent, like with Edmonds and White and hopefully Josh Allen and Ed Oliver. You know, if they're, the you trajectory get, of you're them gonna is... You're going to spend. Yeah. You're, you're going to spend gonna have some to, money. You're going to have to throw them money eventually. Okay. So when you look at the money that the Bills threw around this offseason and the players they brought in, you're going to agree, Chris, with me. I know you are, so I'll already speak for you because that's kind of my thing. Yeah. Well, the, None no, of them are superstars. Yeah. Correct. Okay. But they all serve a purpose. They all have a role. They're all brought in here to enhance some aspect of our roster. And a lot of them were paid fair market value when you just look at their deals on their face and what their average annual value comes out to. But when you look at the 2021 cap figures already being reported by Spotrack.com, you once again find yourself wanting to just applaud this man for what I deem to be a masterclass in contract, just contract negotiation and how to craft a reasonable deal. The Chris, 
it's I've seen the point made that the Bills didn't spend, you know, I, people bitching about the fact that we didn't sign a big name right tackle. No, oh, the Bills went cheap on offense again. Okay. The Bills did spend a lot of money on the front seven last week. But Chris, let's take a look, look at the look at the numbers in front of you. The dead money situation for all of these newcomers in the defensive line next season. Is it is it the ones highlighted in gray? Uh no, it's the ones in parentheses next to that. I see Vernon Butler, one million, Mario Addison, four million, uh Quentin Jefferson, one point five million, and then AJ Klein is at four million. Okay, so to give you guys the quick math, if I'm just talking about let's forget about AJ Klein for a second. I'll come back to that in a little bit. The quick math on this. Nearly every single one of the new faces we brought in to, to revamp this defensive line, the three of them combined, despite their combined cap hits of $24.6 million next year, would cost just $6.5 million in dead money to get out from under next season. Chris, they're essentially rentals. That's a rental contract. It would add $18.6 million to our 2021 cap figure, which is already at 69.8. To put that into a little bit of perspective of what that means, the Buffalo Bills are entering the 2021 season as it currently stands today with 45 players already under contract. That's the second most in the NFL. And yet, we're ranked 20th in total cap space available with the ability to tack on enough extra cap space just by getting out from under these three contracts to boost us up into the low teens of cap space next year. How does that happen? It's witchcraft. Impressive. Chris, in an age where there are video cameras, everyone everywhere has a camera on them, police are around, you'd like to think that organized crime is dead, Chris, this is robbery. This is like back in the day when they used to rob cigarette trucks on highways in the middle of the night. This is this is a joke. You mean to tell me that we added three potentially impressive pieces to our front seven for this year? And if they don't pan out, or if we draft a player, or find another player next offseason that we feel has a better value, we can get out from underneath these contracts for almost nothing. And you think about it like this, Chris. Our team is not only set up to be more competitive now, but we have more than enough cap space available next year when it comes to extensions for guys like Deion Dawkins. Like the inevitable Trey White extension that's coming. I mean, they have his fifth-year option, but even the fifth-year option is going to cost you more than, what, 12, 13 million? It's a lot of money. And yet at the same time, the Bills are in, despite the fact that last year and this year, we brought in a number of imp- what you assume are impact players, Chris. Yes. Stephon Diggs. You go out and you get a guy who gets nine sacks a year. You go out and you get Quentin Jefferson as a defensive tackle. You go out and you take a flyer on a guy like Vernon Butler who, yeah, he's a one-year wonder, but he's a guy that Bean was part of the scouting and drafting process for. You make these moves. You bring in an A.J. Klein to take over Lorenzo Alexander's strong side linebacker role. You fill all these holes... And then you look at it and say, holy shit, you did this without gambling with our future. How? I don't even know how that's possible. I mean, Chris, the other thing here, as we head into the draft, 
is that these moves and the future cap flexibility that come along with them frees us up over the next two seasons to truly go in and draft best player available. How do you not love that? I do love that. I mean, last time we drafted best player available, uh, that was C.J. Spiller. God, I fucking hate you. you. I love the fact that you exist to, to bring me back down to earth. I'll never forget. I remember being at the bar watching that. We're like, ah, eighth pick. I think we had the eighth pick. I was like, yeah, eighth pick. Can't wait. And then they up to the podium. Running back. Clemson. Everybody at the, collectively, we went, what? We already have Lynch. We already have Jackson. And now you bring in, and then Buddy Nix gave, gave that uh, the speech. Oh, to best player available. You know, you're like an atomic bomb, Chris. Everyone's here. We're all having a good time. We're and all yucking up. It. And you show up. Boom. Everything sucks. Everything is shit. Listen, I'm in a good mood because regardless of whether you love the specific players you brought in, you know, people hate, people were lukewarm on the Josh Norman signing. People were lukewarm on the Stefan Diggs trade because they didn't like the value. People didn't like, people haven't liked the, no one loved any of these moves, right? No one loved what he did last offseason until we won 10 games. Exactly. I'm willing to defer to the guy at this point. And Chris, if that doesn't make me a quote unquote good analyst, good. Because I'd rather be a fan. I'd rather be a fan. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what I'm seeing out of our GM. And Chris, he's showing that he's not just making moves here and now, but he's also thinking one to two steps ahead. Which again, that was the thing that sank Doug Whaley. We keep talking about GMs who did poorly. That was Doug Whaley's... That was the thing that ultimately ended up being his... Uh, what do you want to call that? Downfall? Uh, he, I, I don't know. He, he continued to accrue dead cap until he put this team in a position where there was nothing we could do. There was no more moves to be made. We were out of money. We were up against the cap, and we had, we had a bad football team. This team came in with a scalpel cut out the dead tissue, started rebuilding, and now you've got a GM who's built this, this team, Chris. Team that won 10 games with a bunch of number two caliber wide receivers, a first, an offensive line who'd never played together before. A 30, well, what, what, a 90-year-old running back? How old is Frank Gore now? 84. Okay. They still somehow found a way to win 10 games. They're going into this year with an upgraded roster, but beyond that, they're going into it with cap certainty. There's no uncertainty in our future. In fact, if anything, the world's our oyster. We can do whatever the hell we want. And going into the draft, Chris, that has to make everybody happy, regardless of who you are. And so with that, folks, we're playing with house money as we approach the 2020 draft. And this week, we're here to talk linebackers. Crack it! Let's go. Chris, this year, our linebacker room is almost, I want to say, it's an interesting mix. The current state of the roster, let's run this down. First of all, cap allocation, $7.9 million, one of the lowest in the NFL. The percentage of the total cap is only 3.53%. Chris, 
We have some. We have one of the best defenses in football, and we're paying our linebackers almost nothing. And we have three starters already under contract. The Bills have drafted incredibly well at the linebacker position. And between that and their acquisition of players like Corey Thompson and Voshan Joseph, they not only have starters in place, but they've got guys with special teams utility floating around. With that said, I, Chris, if I think that we're seriously flirting with the idea that the Buffalo Bills are a contender... I don't love where our linebacker core is. Because we got no depth? No depth. I mean, let's run it back. Tremaine Edmonds. Everyone knows him. Captain of the front seven. Despite being one of the youngest players in the NFL. He's a physical specimen. Athleticism. Chris, the fact that he can do what he does physically allows the Bills to be varied in their approach it allows them to rush guys because he can drop in deep zones. He can cover, he can shade over to slot receivers. He's athletic enough to let that front seven get away with a lot. And he took a step forward as a leader last season. You remember the Miami game. That's where he found his voice in the locker room. Oh, yeah, the Miami road game. He had, they had a, yep. a team, o- team only meeting. He called it. He's not only found his voice in the locker room, but he's also found a way to lead by example on the field. Then you've got Matt Milano. Like Edmonds, guy with athleticism and coverage skills that are top-notch and allow the Bills to take a lot of liberties in terms of what they do situationally. His play versus the run has improved, but he's a smaller guy. Chris, he's not a guy that I thought was ever going to be great. I thought he was going to be terrible. I thought there was a throwaway pick. How wrong was I? Uh, You're very wrong. You're wrong on a lot of things. Exactly, which is why I don't do this. I don't do draft talk. A.J. Klein. Okay, he's a Sam linebacker prototype. Limited range. He's never going to fool anybody in the fact that you think he might run sideline to sideline. But he's solid against the run, and he provides some acumen as a pass rusher. A little bit. He gives you just enough that you think you can get by. But Chris, I don't think the Bills do because they wouldn't have invested as heavily in pass rushing front seven, you know, defensive line types if they thought that AJ Klein was the outs like the Sam linebacker that could also provide pass rush the way Lorenzo Alexander did. I don't know. It seems like AJ Klein is just here to be like another it's a band-aid. Yeah, it's a yeah, just like Lorenzo Alexander kind of was brought in as a band-aid, but far exceeded that. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think Klein's gonna get anywhere near uh the kind of production and value that we got with Lorenzo How could Le- you? with Lorenzo Alexander. First of all, Lorenzo Alexander, top flight human being. Second of all, Lorenzo Alexander won what uh Pro Bowl player of the game trophy? Sure. For what? those that for those that watch the Pro Bowl. <laughs> what I know is he went to a Pro Bowl. I don't know that AJ Klein will ever even sniff one. That's what we're talking about here. The the limited athleticism. Behind him we have the newly signed Tyler Medikevich, and I've seen a lot of things about him out there on social media, a lot of misconceptions. 
A standout special teams player, Chris. Don't get me wrong. He's great. But after a deeper review, some of you, some of you people at home who think that I, essentially, yo, those of you who leave shitty reviews on iTunes talking about how I never apologize for being wrong, I'll apologize for last week's take that this linebacker does not address our need for starting caliber uh, depth at linebacker. Yes. The guy has just one NFL start to his credit. It came back in 2018. In that game, he allowed 100% of the passes directed at him to be completed. And the worst part is that they were, what was his average depth of target was 9.3 yards. So essentially, Chris, as an interior linebacker, he can't be trusted outside of the line of scrimmage. But he's not big enough to play at the line of scrimmage. And also... So where else would you put him except on special teams? Except on special teams. That's it. I mean, through that lens, if he was going to be... If he was going to back up anybody on the roster, given the fact that he only... Chris, in the game that he started, he did allow every pass, but he finished with 16 tackles and 12 solos. Okay. So that tells me he can tackle well in a short radius, but he does not cover well. If anything, he's a backup to A.J. Klein, which puts us in a hole because we still do not have a true backup to either one of our starting linebackers who play the majority of the nickel snaps that we take. Then you've got Corey Thompson. Two years with the Bills, he's played just 7% of our defensive snaps and 34% of special team snaps. He is the only other Bills linebacker beside Medikevich on the roster to start an NFL game. Chris, we're dying for an NFL start on this roster. Behind those two, you have Voshan Joseph. He's a late-round pick in 2019. Lost during the preseason with a torn ACL. I thought he had a shoulder injury. I wrote torn ACL, and as I... As I wrote it, I was like, I don't even know if this is right, but I'm too lazy to go back and fix it. Well, I think you just sold it like he, yeah, he tore his ACL. No, because you know what? I remember thinking, he won't lose his athleticism. He'll just be a little fucked up, and maybe he'll be a little more tentative to tackle. But he was a small linebacker to begin with, so he won't tackle that aggressively anyway. Ultimately, Voshan Joseph was touted pre-draft for his athleticism, but got bagged on for his lack of assignment sound play, which, Chris, if you know anything about Sean McDermott, you do your job. It's almost you do Bilicek- It's Billichekian in this idea that you have a job to do. Don't you don't worry about anything else going on in the field. Do your job. And if everybody does their 111th, you'll win. When you look at I, I mean, it's just, he was a projected late-round project. He's on a lock to make the roster, Chris. Voshan Joseph could come out and have a decent camp, but in a truncated span, I don't know that a team like the Bills would trust a guy who, the book on him was that he didn't have it between the years, right? He just didn't get gap assignments. He didn't understand the nuances of coverage. 
So when you take it into that perspective, knowing that he's your depth player, that's not a guy that I can rely on from one. Chris, if something were to happen to Matt Milano week one, I don't know that I would trust Voshan Joseph to be his backup. No. And then we've got two other guys, Tyrell Dodson and Delshawn Phillips. Hello, I've never heard of you before. Not shocking. Not shocking. No one knows who the hell these guys are. Dodson out of Texas A&M. He's an interesting player. He's big. He's physical. He might be able to do a lot of things for you. Delshawn Phillips. Chris, I don't even know who that is. Never heard of the guy. No. No one has. They represent flyers that the Bills have picked up to just flesh out the roster at linebacker. And they're even more of a... (laughs) They have even less of a chance to make the roster than Joseph. But they have practice squad eligibility. That's it. That's the only thing I can say that's nice about these players. So when you look at our draft philosophy when it comes to the linebacker position, it's a wildly underrated need as we head into the draft. When the Bills lost Lorenzo Alexander this year, he took with him the highest snap percentage at the linebacker position outside of Trey Edmonds and Milano. The most experienced of anybody on this Bills roster, and he was also extremely effective when asked to play around the line of scrimmage, both as a pass rusher and a run defender. There is a massive void to fill right now because the Bills don't play a ton of base defense. But A.J. Klein, he's a nice player, but I don't think he's a dynamic player. And you you need to have backup-level replacements for your, for the rest of your linebackers. I mean, Chris, doesn't it scare you a little bit that if something were to happen to Trey Edmonds, we don't have a qualified middle linebacker or anyone who's ever communicated in a middle linebacker role on the roster as of today? Yeah, that's going to be tough if he goes if he goes down with an injury. And even for as big and freakishly athletic and durable as he's been, look at Matt Milano. Matt Milano's a guy who might leave here at the end of the season. Isn't now the time to start hedging your bets on that? Like, hey, we should prepare for the fact that given that Matt Milano's probably the low man on the totem pole in terms of contract negotiation. Shouldn't you try to hedge your bets on, hey, we have at least an in-house option who's already spent a year around the team. We don't have a guy here. No, not yet. Not yet. So with that, we turn an eye to the NFL draft and we open it up to tonight's guest. And so with that, we're going to launch into a conversation about the makeup of the 2020 linebacker class with a special guest who swung in here like Batman. Literally. Chris, you're Commissioner Gordon. Sir, you are Batman. Mr. Bruce Exclusive, how are you doing? Dude, I'm fantastic. You put up the Bruce signal, and I I, I swooped in. That's what I do. (laughs) Oh, folks. Those of you who are not familiar, you must be living under a rock. Bruce Nolan of the Nick and Nolan podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Bruce Almighty, but that is his persona. That is who he I mean, listens to the voice. The man, Bruce, tell the people a little bit about it. 
Well, I, I, Nick and I, Nick Bat on Twitter, at Nick Bat, I'm at Bruce Exclusive. We are the hosts of the Nick and Nolan Show on the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network, along with a wonderful slew of other shows on the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network. I was a member of the old Buffalo Bills message boards 15, <laughs> 20 years ago, and my, my username on the Buffalo Bills message boards was Bruce Nolan, taken from, obviously, the Buffalo-based movie starring Jim Carrey entitled Bruce Almighty. And when I joined Twitter, I joined Twitter primarily to make sure I connected with the people who I used to know from the Buffalo Bills message boards. And as such, that became the Twitter persona. And then when I started doing podcasting, I just kept the persona going because that's how people knew me. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. You guys, your show has exploded over there, Buffalo Rumblings. And it's <laughs> now, now what? You're doing multiple shows a week? Yes. Thursday and Friday every week you get an episode of the Nick and Nolan Show. And then occasionally special episodes uh, based with, uh, we like to do food pods with members of the Buffalo media. We did Nate Geary, Tim Graham, things like that. And then Nick is working on a special series right now that's going to be dropping here in the next week or so that we're really excited about. So all sorts of content coming from us, but the traditional Nick and Nolan shows, as it were, they drop on Thursday and Friday on the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network. So tonight, the reason we're here is to talk about the makeup of the 2020 linebacker class. I've got a little bit of bullet in my hand, a little bullet whiskey, and that helps me complete the George Thorogood trifecta for the night. And so with that, I want to launch into this conversation. <sighs> there have been at least four linebackers drafted in the first round in each of the last three drafts. Now, this year, I feel like looking over just the quality of the linebacker core, it could be a departure from that, at least in terms of traditional stand-up linebackers. It seems a little top-heavy this year. I mean, when I'm looking at the class overall, you've got guys like Isaiah Simmons, who can play every single position. You've got a guy who's kind of rocketed up draft boards late, who got a lot of late in the college season recognition in Patrick Queen. But to the casual observer, things seem to trail off after that. There's not a lot of quote-unquote big names flying around out there. So do you think it's a fair assessment of the draft that maybe it's this year's is still a little bit top-heavy? Or do you think that, there is a, that there's viable depth here? As you look through the first and second to the third and fourth rounds, you know, where teams sort of make hay and find starters. I don't think this is as good of a linebacker class as it has been the last couple of years. I think you're, you're probably really accurate when you say that. I think we might still end up with three. I think Simmons, Murray, and Queen could still go in the first round. But the drop-off in off-ball linebackers is fairly notable in this class. And especially when you consider how strong it is in things like running backs and wide receivers, really strong class, extremely strong, top elite talent offensive tackle class. These are going to push a lot of those players down. I wouldn't be shocked if we went, you know, 15 to 18 picks in the second round and got no linebackers at all. Wow. Although, yeah, either edge players or off-ball players. We could go an entire round and not have any off-ball linebackers be taken because it's just, okay, if you don't get one of those top three, what are you going to do there? Well, and, and I guess that's the other thing to this is you're talking about off-the-ball linebackers. 
But for people looking for edge players that can play that hybrid defensive end, Sam, outside linebacker role, it seems like there's a lot of impact players in this class. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the edge class is not wonderful, but I think if you're looking for toolsy guy, if you're looking for someone like a Julian Orquara or a Terrell Lewis, someone who looks like they were built in a lab to play edge in a in either a 4-3 alignment or to rush the passer standing up from a 3-4 outside linebacker position, people with long arms and they got the burst, I think you've got a couple toolsy players to be able to pick from there. It depends on what you want your linebackers to do. As usual, this is going to be primarily based on what's your flavor. What mm-hmm. are you in your system asking your linebackers to do? And then that's going to determine how you feel about the class in particular. Well, I guess that's a big thing. Like last year when we sat down with Michael Kiss from Bleeding Green Nation and we talked about the class of linebackers, he told us, Chris, I mean, I think we have the quote somewhere. I I led him with the question, what do you think of this year's class? And his response was, it sucks. And he just let that hang for a few seconds. He just let that breathe for a few seconds. He told us that in terms of overall depth, it was one of the weakest classes in a long time. And he said it was one of the weaker in terms of overall quality. And that turned out to be a pretty fair assessment. Because, I mean, out of the 32 linebackers that were drafted, only 12 got taken in the first four rounds. And out of those guys, you've got a Ja'Kai Polite out of Florida who never played a single game. He got cut just for being a lazy POS and just not making an effort to be a pro football player. And then you've got Josh Allen. You know, while he's out here illustrating 10 and a half sacks, I mean, he showed up. And you've got the Devin Whites and the Devin Bushes were racking up tackles, the last of the rest of that linebacker group drafted in the first three rounds were non-factors to the respective teams. Do you think there's a danger for teams drafting linebackers early that they might fall into a similar hole? I think this class, much like much like the last couple of classes, it's really important to make a distinction in your system between a linebacker and an edge player. Because if you run maybe a, a 4-3 over like Wade Phillips, so, you know, some, something a little bit closer to being a traditional 3-4 or something, then what you ask your linebackers to do almost, almost mirrors what a 4-3 defensive end would do. You're just going to do it standing up. And so when you start to look at traits, I think it's really important to make the delineation between a linebacker from a traditional sense and an edge player. And if you're somebody in this particular class who says, we need off-ball linebackers, you might have to start dipping into the safety class to be able to get your pieces. Someone like Tanner Muse, someone like Jeremy Chin, these are players who can very reasonably be a 4-3 outside linebacker, probably a run-and-chase weak side linebacker in that position. You might have to dip into the safety class to supplement because your off-ball outside linebacker non-edge players aren't deep enough to get you what you need on the own. Man, see, and I guess that's where when you when you try to take a look at what the Bills are walking into this with. So from a Bills perspective, I mean, when we look at this year's class, there's a lot of good linebacking talent out there. It's just, to your point, what is it that you're expecting to get out of the draft? So as a Bills fan, I'm looking at this from a perception. I mean, Despite the fact that Lorenzo Alexander was so old that he, by football standards, that he farted dust. I mean, 
He was a godsend for the Bills in playing Sam Linebacker. When you look at the way that he not only played well against the run, but he was the fourth most blitzed player on the roster. He retires and we pick up an A.J. Klein who's going to try to take up the mantle, but I'm not going to lie. You kind of have to look at what's beyond him at that position because he's a nice band-aid, but he is not the be-all and end-all of the Sam linebacker position. Even for a 4-3 defense that may not, may not ultimately use that a lot. Would you agree with me as a guy who covers the Buffalo Bills that at the Sam linebacker position, the Bills could probably use an upgrade with a little more pass rush acumen? Absolutely. I don't think A.J. Klein is an overly dynamic player by any means. It's, it's important to note that with Lorenzo Alexander leaving as your third linebacker in three linebacker sets, that you're not going to be able to plug and play one guy to replace him. And so what I think is actually happening with the Bills this offseason is they're replacing aspects of Lorenzo Alexander rather than replacing him in his entirety. So with the three linebacker set part, the play the run downhill, play into the line of scrimmage, read and react kind of player, that's what they got A.J. Klein for. Now, if you want an inside-outside pass rusher, because remember, Lorenzo Alexander was in the defensive line room as well as in the linebacker room because of how often he rushed the passer either from an end or from a defensive tackle position. Well, you got Quentin Jefferson for that. And so then you need the special teams demon. And you got Matakevich. You brought him over from the Steelers. Dirty red. You brought him in for that. <laughs> dirty red. So absolutely it. dirty red. I remember red. him yes, coming on a, a temple. We have a new leader in the clubhouse for a best Bills nickname. I remember him coming out of temple and thinking to myself, man, that's a kid that would look good in a Bills uniform. And when we didn't draft him, we're like, bah, he's not going to be a starting linebacker anyway. It doesn't matter. And now he's here. Well, I think it, I think it was important to get to get Trent Murphy some competition for which Bills player looks most like a Viking as well. I think that was pretty high on their list. So that helps as well. But, you know, when you have Lorenzo Alexander, you're specifically talking about one aspect of Lorenzo Alexander, which mm -hmm. is the Sam linebacker part, which is the third linebacker. You know, occasionally he would end up playing on the left side, depending on left, right. But Lorenzo Alexander, you think, okay, how often did he really do that third linebacker set? Because the Bills ran a ton of nickel yes. last year. Just an absolute back crap ton of nickel. And that's just the direction where the league is trending. Everyone's running more and more in nickel. I mean, you're talking 10 to 15 snaps a game. So yes, you want to upgrade Klein at, at linebacker in those three linebacker sets, if at all possible. And you might not want to spend massive assets to do it because he's not going to be on the field that much. Well, and I guess that's but, my question is what, what do you, when you think about this class as a whole, do you believe that somewhere in those you know, I mean, you think about what we, where we found Lorenzo Alexander. I feel like we struck gold while we were panning for it in the landfill. He's he's the once in a lifetime player you find when you're searching through the scrap heap in the off season. You're going into the draft and you're saying to yourself, "I need to find a player who can fit multiple roles," but I don't want to spend a top sixty or a top, maybe even a top one hundred pick on him. Do you think this draft class is deep enough that they could still find a candidate to groom to inevitably take over the mantle of that Sam linebacker position? Earlier on in the show, we were talking about cap numbers for next year. The dead number for Klein is only $4 million. And based on the other moves that the team could make and the other almost rental-type contracts that we've signed, 
it's not inconceivable that this position still could be up for grabs if a talented rookie were to come into the room and take ownership of that spot. So that's why I asked the question. I think you're much more likely to be able to find a hedge against Matt Milano leaving than you would be able to find a Lorenzo Alexander replacement in this draft. But I do like Troy Dye from Oregon. Uh, I think when you have a running back, sorry, when you have a linebacker who's one of their main concerns is they can't keep the weight on, you think to yourself, okay, that means you're going to need it to be in probably a 4-3 defense, and you're going to need bigger ends to keep you clean. And Nick and I have talked about this before, but Sean McDermott kind of has a type when it comes to defensive ends. He's not a 6'5", 245 kind of guy. I mean, you think about the people who have been selected by him throughout his career. You think about people like Mario Addison multiple times. You think about Charles Johnson. You think about Coney Ely. These are 275-pound men. I mean, one of the lightest defensive ends who started for him was Greg Hardy, who now has to cut weight to get to the MMA heavyweight limit of 265. So when you have bigger defensive end, it allows you to get away with smaller linebackers. And so when you find players who are not necessarily going to be appealing to everyone, those people have a tendency to fall. Well, someone like Troy Dye well, is someone like that. You just hit this out of the park because you're talking about the, the thing I was going to ask about. Because Chris and I had kind of alluded to this earlier in the show when we were talking about contract statuses and things that were coming down the road. We have a lot of extensions to dole out. And right now you're talking about Trey White. You're talking about who plays a premium position being a lockdown cornerback. You have a left tackle coming in Deion Dawkins. I think if you had to rank them in terms of low man on the totem pole, Matt Milano is the last guy to see an extension out of everybody else who matters right now. They already did Jordan Poyer. So with that said, I looked at some of the guys, and Troy Dye is, in fact, one of the players that I have the most questions on. You know, over the last few years, you look at Dye. He's intriguing in the sense that he's a great athlete. He's a little light in the jeans, to your point. <laughs> he probably runs about 225. <laughs> and so he's kind of shoehorned into that weak side linebacker in a 4-3 defense role. Almost kind of like a Duran Lee was. Holy shit, was that funny? His ringtone for his mother is Chris Farley talking about someone, the only other From woman. Coneheads. The only other woman I've ever seen take a sandwich like that was my mother. Yeah, Coneheads. I'm for it. I'm here, I'm here for all of this. I'm here for all the Chris Farley sandwich jokes you have, by the way. <laughs> Mute your goddamn phone. So ultimately, he kind of almost seems to be a guy in that Duran Lee role. He's a little taller, but he's lean. But at the same time... I. He seems to be a guy who might fit that role who could slide out of first and second round consideration. Do you think he might be a fit here in Buffalo? I think he might be. I think that there are there are a little bit of concerns that he's you, you you hear some people around that program talk about how seriously he might take it, which might fly in the face of some of the process stuff, but he's got a big personality, he's always got a smile on his face. He seems to fit in that in that strain of it. He's got the frame for it. He's been effective as a blitzer. He can play in coverage. He's the kind of guy who you think, okay, we might like him better than other people. And 
he might be better here than he would be elsewhere. And so that's how you end up with some of these steals. How you end up with a steal in a draft is everybody passed on these players multiple times for a reason. And those might either be injury concerns or they might be fit concerns. But what does he do that fits us that doesn't fit somebody else? And when you have converted safeties already playing weak side linebacker for you, a.k.a. Matt Milano, and you have other converted safeties you bring in, Maurice Alexander, to play linebacker for you, it's not crazy to have people who are a little light play that position for you. I personally, I don't want to get too far off of Troy Guy, but I am a Jeremy Chin guy while we're on the subject of converted safeties. If we pick Jeremy Chin at 54, I would be thrilled with that. I think he is an upgrade from Matt Milano and also provides you a hedge against the idea that he might walk next year. So I am totally on board with the little lighter converted defensive back if necessary at linebacker because that's where this league is going. This league is not going to the Kelvin Shepherds of the worlds, to the Reggie Raglins of the world. These people are a dying breed. Two down thumpers have no place in the NFL at this point. Brandon Spikes. Listen, hey, really whoa, 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 whoa. Don't hurt my feelings about loving Reggie Ragland. All right. I will live Sorry. and die on the hill that I thought Reggie Ragland was gonna he was gonna change the Bills defense forever. I almost Sorry. bought the jersey the day that he got trained. Wow, that's strong. That's really strong. But people like Ragland, <sighs> people like Brandon Spikes, they're <laughs> lucky they came in when they came in. Because right now, you need people who can run. You need freaks to play linebacker because you have to be a better athlete on defense to match a lower athlete on offense. You know why? Because the offensive players know where they're going. It's that simple. Exactly. You have to be a better athlete than the offensive player to be able to react to them and still be able to keep up. You need linebackers who can run. That's how you got to, we got to play against Lamar Jackson, guys. We got to play against Patrick Mahomes. We need athletes. And Milano is a, is a, is a good athlete, but he's a four, six, seven guy. And Jeremy Chin's a four-four-five guy. There's a mountain in between them. Well, so here, these converted light people like Troy Dye, like Jeremy Chin, I'm down with it. Let's do it. Well, and this is the reason I like Troy Dye. You look at his statistics, it speaks to his, his pass coverage acumen. The fact that in 2018, he had two sacks, eight pass breakups, and one interception. In 2019, as a senior, two and a half sacks, two forced fumbles, four pass breakups, and two picks. That's as a weak side linebacker in what... A guy playing a role that he would inevitably play in a 4-3 defense. Just off, complete off-the-ball linebacker. I like that. Now, when we look around the rest of this, I, I mean, we've talked about the linebacking core as a whole as it kind of the end of the run-up of this interview with you. <sighs> Behind Matt Milano, A.J. Klein and Tremaine Edmonds heading into 2020, the players that make up our roster have one NFL start apiece. Those are our backups. There is no experience there. That's not ideal, even if your starters, your starters are highly durable and highly effective. Now, last year, we drafted Voshan Joseph in the fifth round. The, the book on him was that he had all the athletic chops to play a weak side linebacker role. He just didn't have it between the ears to play coverage. Based on the fact that we have no book on him, is he something that Bills fans can bank on heading into the season? 
or should we expect the team to maybe make a move or two there? I liked Voshan Joseph coming out. I liked him specifically as a backup to Matt Milano because Voshan Joseph is the ultimate see ball, yeah, get ball kind of linebacker. And allowing him to flow from the weak side gives him more time to process. And I didn't trust him. A lot of people were thinking about him as potentially um, filling in for Lorenzo Alexander. And that's not really what he does. Playing no, into no. Scrimmage, reading and react, stacking and shedding blocks. That's not really what he does. He He's a see ball, get ball kind of guy. And I think that one of the things that hurt Voshan Joseph was he he shouldn't have tested. He shouldn't have done any athletic testing. He tried to power through with some soft muscle injuries, some soft tissue injuries, and he tested like garbage. I mean, hot, flaming, stinking garbage. And because of that, his drafts, draft stock just, I mean, it's better not to test at all than to test and test poorly. Because some people who don't necessarily always understand the context might really kind of dock you for it. I'm not going to lie. I, I took a test when I was in college. I got enrolled at the behest of a soon-to-be-retired uh, college advisor to enroll in molecular chemistry. This course had prereqs in calculus, and I did not take math three. Like, I bailed, out of, I bailed out of trigonometry in high school because I found out that my college didn't require it for, for me. So I bombed that class, but I still showed up and took the final exam simply because I felt like I had something to prove. Even knowing yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna do horribly, I still felt like I had to sit there and take the final test. So I can understand some of that. Yeah, you you appreciate the grit, but it certainly didn't hurt. Didn't help the draft stock. By no. But Voshan Joseph, I, I'm actually okay. I'm actually a little intrigued to see what he can do backing up Matt Milano. Now he's a fifth round pick for a reason, right? His instincts leave left something to be desired a little bit on the college tape, and I don't trust him with the ball running at him. So if, for example, there was a, a weak side counter and there was a pulling guard coming his direction, I would not trust him to take on that guard and be able to disrupt that play coming his way. If he, the ball is running away from him, I trust him to chase it down, shoot gaps, be that kind of linebacker. But if you run directly at him, I'm very interested to see how that goes for for them in the preseason this upcoming year. It's one of the things I'll be looking at because I, of course, didn't get a chance to see any meaningful Voshan Joseph snaps last year. But I think it's more of a Matt Milano backup than it is anything else. But absent that, I mean, there are some... I mean, Tyrell Dotson's interesting because he's interesting because he has that... He has that strong side linebacker build to him. He's the biggest of the ones we have. And... He's shown some traits, some stack and shed ability and things like that. And so you think, okay, maybe he could be the, the heir apparent. In fact, Joe Marino and I were talking about this before, before we even went into free agency and picked up Klein and said, which one of the players on our roster do we think has the highest likelihood of carving out meaningful time to fill Lorenzo Alexander's spot? And I thought it was Tyrell Dodson. The fact that he got into some off the field issues and the Bills still hung on to him was intriguing to me because it indicated that they might see something there that they wanted to develop and were willing to potentially take on some bad PR to do it. And so I think that Tyrell Dotson's interesting. I'd like to see how he performs at that linebacker spot. And I think 
that Voshan Joseph's interesting, but much more so as a weak side linebacker. Well, I guess when you're talking about guys drafted that late, I mean, these are all flyers. And yet, when you look at last year's draft, so we took Matt Milano in the fifth round, and I assumed badly. It was a throwaway pick. This is why we do the draft series with other people who study the draft, because I don't know a goddamn thing. I'm terrible, and I admit that. I know nothing about the NFL draft. I, I can study a guy or two who I think I like, and yet I, Chris, how many times am I wrong? Uh, a lot. Matt Milano, you got wrong. Um, you didn't like that we drafted uh, Trey White. Because I thought Reuben Foster yeah, would be the Reuben, uh... Reuben Foster. And then uh, as, as long as I've known you, like, past, before we were doing this podcast, I do know that you really like Ryan Mallett. Oh, my God. I thought Ryan Mallett was going to change the face of quarterback and in Land- the NFL. And Landry Jones. There's a slew of people that you don't know anything about the draft. That's why we get other people on that study it way better than you. So given that, last year, there were three players, Dre Greenlaw, Mac Wilson, and Cole Holcomb, drafted in the fifth round, who all came on to post at least 60 tackles and a sack for the respective teams. It seems like... At the linebacker position, you can find depth late. Who are the guys that you think in this draft, sleeper caliber type players, guys that you think that maybe teams are overlooking that could come on in a similar way? I really like, I don't think he's really a sleeper. I really like Malik Harrison from Ohio State and not because I am a a homer. I think that people have him kind of labeled as a thumper and they really really kind of don't understand the range that there is there. Malik Harrison is an unbelievable athlete. He was a dunk champion. And I think that people think he's one of those two-down thumpers that we talked about before. They, they think he's Brandon Spikes. You know, they think he's Reggie Ragland. And I don't think he is. I don't think that's the case at all. I think he's got the range to be able to do what he needs to do to be a, a reasonable three-down linebacker. In this league, I think he's got, you know, much more so. I have, I have his linebacker four this year. I think that he should be a second round pick. And that's definitely not sleeper territory, but I think he's getting underappreciated. I really do. I think that there's, there's a reasonable chance that he is a, a good linebacker for a long time in the league. I like Shaq Quarterman from Miami. I know it's he's a feel a guy, good story. And, I was going to say, he's a guy that I constantly see. I hate mock yeah. drafts. I want to stab my eyes out whenever I see people talking about mock drafts. You're part of that group. And so is I am. you, Joe Marino, Greg Thompson, all of you guys, you know, cover one, the, the Bruce. All yeah. of you Anybody guys, that does a mock draft, please uh, tag us on do Twitter. Do not tag me in this. Please tag us on die. Twitter. You're killing me. You are actively working to take years off my life. That's what you're yeah. doing when you tag me these things. But with that said, I constantly see this Shaq Quarterman guy. His name is constantly popping up in association with the Bills. Why is that? It's mostly the intangibles. Shaq Quarterman was unquestionably the leader of that Miami defense. And when you hear him talk and you see the way that he presents himself in public and on the field, you think, gosh, that's a guy I need on my team. And when you have these later round people, a lot of times I feel like, there's a, 
there's a weird dynamic between early and late round picks that as you get later into the draft, there's a, a separation. And so later in the draft, there's like two types of people you take later in the draft. Number one, all intangibles, maybe lesser physical skills. Number two, all the physical skills and nothing else. Like there's a big, there's a big, big gap in your mindset because you think, well, these are late round flyers. So either I'm going to take something where I know worst case scenario, I'll get a special teams player out of them. Or you say, I'm going to take someone who's literally nothing but physical tools. I mean, goodness gracious, look at Daryl Johnson from last year for the Bills, right? He's got physically everything you want. I was going to say, you sound like you're talking about the pterodactyl. The the pterodactyl with his eight, what, almost eight foot wingspan? And Shaq Quarterman fits the size profile, 6'1", 234. He fits the size profile that you want. Um, I really like Davion Taylor from Colorado. He's a little lighter, but that, again, we've established that works in this particular system, right? I think he can play weak side linebacker. I think he's 227, and he can run to the ball. And so you'll see him a lot with those kind of things because these are players that don't fit in any system. Think about this. If you run a 3-4, okay, a linebacker who is 220 has no place, basically, nope. in your defense. Because those people are safeties. Because nope. <laughs> you're inside so, linebackers. So watching Alabama play for years, you run outside linebackers off your defensive line, but you're but that's how the Reggie Raglins of the world make their money. Right. Because they're the thumpers behind that massive penetrating defensive line, the Jonathan Allens of the world. Reggie Ragland is back there cleaning up anybody who comes across in a sh- he can play a shallow zone and he can come downhill and they don't ask him to do more than that. And so in those types of defensive schemes in college, you can get away with a lot of that. You can make guys look like superstars. When it comes to the NFL, the offensive players are so much more explosive that you can't hide those guys. Yeah. And, and that's really what gives some of these later round linebackers a shot is they only fit certain schemes, and they're not scheme versatile. It's not like they're 6'5", 260 with crazy long arms, and you go, well, where can't I play this? Let's look, let's, let's, let's contrast someone like Shaq Quarterman, okay, with someone like Tremaine Edmonds. Okay? When Tremaine Edmonds came out, the question wasn't what do you do with him, it's what can't you do with him? So there were tons of players who thought he was an edge rusher, guys. Oh, they thought I he was saw an edge pick- rusher. Okay, so when the story here is famous on the Rockbell Report, I was so, I got so drunk after I saw that we drafted Josh Allen, just out of rage, frustration, uh, just despair. My wife had to tell me the next morning as we woke up at a Jamaican resort <laughs> that the Bills had drafted a linebacker. And I was like, who? And she told me, and she's a like, Tremaine Edmonds. I don't know who that is. I'm like, I don't know who that is either. So I go online and I start reading about him. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. It sounds like this guy has been an outside linebacker who sacks the quarterback. He's played middle linebacker. And he's also played the slot and chased down receivers. Where the hell did they, did, did they make this guy in Madden? Or did they draft him? Yeah, he's a creative player. He was made in a lab. There's no question. And that's actually one of the reasons why he came out so early is because the growth hormones that they injected him with <laughs> when they created him in this lab actually sped up the growth process a little bit more, which is why he came out and he was so young. It makes complete sense to me. I, I just, you look at this guy. 
he needed a year to get it between the years. I mean, that was the knock on him. It's why he wasn't linebacker one. Roquan Smith, Roquan Smith out of Alabama was linebacker one that year. He went to the, he went to the Bears and he's been a good, he's been a good linebacker for him. But you look at Tremaine Edmonds and you say to yourself, okay, here's a guy who he needed some help getting there in terms of understanding gap assignments, understanding zone, understanding where you need to be. But I think we saw last year, he's coming on in all cylinders of the game. He's owning it. And now he's taking it in the locker room. I feel like we have, we have a, we've been blessed with a guy with all the physical, physical gifts in the world. One of the questions I have for you, I guess, before we get out of here, or before we wrap this up, is if you're looking for depth, because we're set as a team heading into this year, A.J. Klein, Tremaine Edmonds, Matt Milano. You can get by with those three players for a full season if they all stay healthy. But linebacker is a messy position, and the wins above replacement, now that's a metric they use in baseball, no one's been able to perfect it to football yet. But the wins above replacement at linebacker, I feel like it's got to be pretty low. Considering the fact that the Buffalo Bills entered a game, what was it, Chris, 2016 or 2015, when the uh, Jets were on the verge of making the playoffs. A.J. Tarpley. A.J. Tarpley was our starting linebacker, and he immediately washed out of the NFL. But we won that game, and he had the game-winning interception. Linebacking play can make your defense elite, but also... It's highly replaceable if your offense is good enough to overcome that. So in that sense, I don't know what value you place on this, but I feel like finding, there's not a priority placed on finding backups to high-performing players like Milano, like Edmonds, like AJ Klein. Would you agree with me on that? I would say at that point, it really depends on the system. I would make an argument that Sean McDermott's system is more linebacker-centric okay. than, most, than most in the league. I mean, think about it this way. The, the Luke Keekley and Thomas Davis duo were arguably one of the most significant reasons, aside from Cam Newton absolutely going the hell off, that the Panthers were able to make it to the Super Bowl. They were led by Cam Newton on offense and then their incredibly athletic linebacker duo on defense. Sean McDermott has not rolled with unbelievable secondaries his entire career. In fact, he hasn't rolled with unbelievable pass rush. Think about it this way. So if you think, okay, look at Sean McDermott's career. Just Let's just go Panthers and Bills, right? His secondary was probably never as good as it was until he got here. And he had Jordan... Poyer, Micah Hyde, and they got Tredavious White. Now, I know CB2, we can have a whole different discussion about that. But (laughs) his defense isn't known for having ridiculously talented pass rushers on the outside. I mean, if we're going to say Charles Johnson was the biggest pass rusher for the Panthers during his time there. I mean, Mario Addison. And then in the back, we had one shining moment of Josh Norman in 2015. But aside from that, we had an aging Peanut Tillman. We had... Chris Gamble, who was a good player for a while, but nothing nothing Tredavious White level. His safeties were incredibly replaceable. Kirk Coleman, the guy who might not make the team in <laughs> Buffalo, started in Carolina. 
Think yeah. about what it was that held his defense together. It was those two linebackers. I think Sean McDermott's defense might not necessarily be the exception to the rule, but might be more linebacker-centric than perhaps other defenses that rely on exterior pressure or lockdown court. I mean, look at someone like, like, like the Patriots' defense. The Patriots' defense very clearly prioritizes coverage over pass rush. This has been established multiple times over. They let Flowers go. They traded Chandler Jones. They paid Stephon Gilmore. If that doesn't tell you where your priorities are, I don't know what does. But they have linebackers who are just these players who just kind of rotate in. They go somewhere else, and they never produce. And then they come back, to, and they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, come on back. We're going to trade you Jamie the Browns. Collins, pick yeah, Jamie Collins just leaving. Yeah. For, he gets traded away, and then he ends up back on the Patriots roster. Right, because I don't think it's a linebacker-centric defense. I think it's a defense that puts its linebackers in position to do to do well, and they look good, but it doesn't require a high skill set for them. I think Sean McDermott's defense might be different. The fact that they traded up to get Tremaine Edmonds made me think, hey, they think they've got their Luke Keekley. I know he's not Luke Keekley, but they clearly prioritized it in a similar sense to getting a franchise quarterback. They traded up the assets to get him, and... I wonder if Sean McDermott's defense is not necessarily an exception to the rule, but simply a different prioritization when it comes to off-ball linebackers relative to the rest of the league. Man, I'll tell you this. If they can backstop this, if they can find a way to make this defense just a little more whole, I believe that that alone could carry us to a Super Bowl. (laughs) I agree with you. I I think this team is Super Bowl ready on a talent standpoint right now. It it shocks me the number of people who naysay this team who don't understand over the course of the last 20 years, this is the most talented roster pre-draft that I've ever seen. And so with that, before we let you go, I got two questions, two players that I have a man crush on. I need your opinion. Terrell Lewis, is he an edge player or is he an outside linebacker? I think he's an edge player. I think when you when you have the wingspan that he has and you don't utilize that to use his length on the edge, I think it's just an absolute shame. And you weigh in 262 and you're six foot five. I mean, he, he is someone where you think, goodness gracious, if he can if he can really put it together, because major, major injury problems yes. with him. Listen, as but, an Alabama fan, I know that this guy, he's suffered, but he can stay healthy. Yeah. Come on now. He can be special. He has those really long limbs. I mean, long legs and long arms. And he looks like Javon Curse out there with the length, you know? And it's it's crazy. If, if you were to draw up someone, you go, man, he can close ground fast. And if you can close ground fast and you can bend and you can use your long arm, you can keep people off you. It, it's just, it's one of those things where you think, gosh, I can't teach that, right? No matter how good of an instincts you have as a 4-3 defensive end, and I would argue his, his teammate, Anthony Jennings, actually has better instincts as a 4-3 end than he does. But Jennings doesn't look like that. Thank Jennings you. Jennings doesn't Thank have you. that Thank you, and length. that's why I like Lewis, because Lewis is a little bit bigger. Guys, He's an Alabama linebacker. You know I had to ask a question about one of them because, let's face it, I'm a homer. The other guy, sticking with the SEC, 
have a question. I've seen him mocked a bunch of times to the Buffalo Bills, and I want to know what the buzz is. Michael Divinity, outside linebacker out of LSU. He's routinely mocked to us, but at the same time, he pulled out of college early. And ultimately, his team went on to win the national title. So clearly, there were problems there. What is the book on this guy? This is one of those looks like Tarzan plays like Jane sort of scenario. Oh, no! Where where you go, okay, you think to yourself, goodness gracious, long arm, good size, he looks the part, you know? And then you think to yourself, okay, why aren't you moving faster? Like, why, 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 why aren't you burstier? And then you go, okay, wait, hold on. So, so you, you left the team. You may have failed a couple drug tests. <laughs> you, you don't have quickness. You're like, okay, but, but I don't understand. You look right. Everything that I, when I look at you, I think this guy can clearly play football. And I have mocked them mocked him to the Bills because this is one of those guys where if he's still there and it's the fifth or sixth round and you're like, okay, I'm playing with house money. This is the kind of player you take you take a flyer on. I mentioned earlier in this discussion that when you get to the end of the, the draft, you typically have two types of players, right? You have the all intangible try hard white dude. And then you have somebody who's just physical traits are just there. And this is one of those guys where you go, you know what? The risk is really low. It's a sixth-round pick or it's a fifth-round pick. You know what? Let's just take him. Let's just see what he gives us. See if we can turn him into something because you can't teach what the guy's got. I think he's much more of a 3-4 outside linebacker than he is for us. I don't think he's going to be an off-ball guy for us. I think he's an edge player because I don't think this particular regime wants somebody who's weighing north of 240 – but doesn't have the change of direction skills to play off-ball linebacker. I think he's either going to be a 3-4 outside linebacker or he's going to be a 4-3 defensive end. I think he's a rush player. It sounds to me like you think if we drafted him and took a flyer on him, McDermott could make him the best version of himself <laughs> on and off the field. <laughs> I, I, here's what I think. I think that when you, when you look like Michael Divinity Jr., and then you run a four eight five, and you think, okay, what, what, what do I do with him? So I didn't need any more questions on this guy. You know, with all the off-the-field stuff and the fact that, okay, 2019, you're basically non-existent. But, you know, you had production in, in 2018. Okay, I, I didn't need more flags for you. And then you get more flags, and he just starts <laughs> to fall and fall. And at some point, at some point, you think, goodness gracious, Like, the value proposition's there. I think he's going to get drafted. You see stories like this. On the day three of the NFL draft, when ESPN and NFL Network are trying desperately to keep you interested in people (laughs) who might be selling insurance in three years, they're trying to come up with stories to keep you going. And one of the ways they do that is these really talented players who just fell off the cliff or they had all sorts of of off-the-field because people love redemption stories. And I have a feeling this might be one of the discussions about day three of the draft. Who's your favorite sleeper or value pick of this draft at linebacker? I really like Logan Wilson and not because he's from Wyoming. (laughs) I think you can can get him outside the top 100. And so I'm going to count that as sleeper. But I think think Logan Wilson is one of those players who just – he just shows up every time you look at the film. You know, when you look at 
players from lower classes of schools. One of the prerequisites is, did they flash? Because if they don't flash at Wyoming, they're not going to flash. You know, if, if you don't jump off the, the field to me, when you go to UNC Charlotte, then we might have a problem. you got to dominate a lower level of competition. And the dude can run. I mean, 4.63 in the, in the 40, 121-inch broad jump. The guy can – he's a lot more – he's not a try-hard dude. This is a guy who I think is not Kelvin Shepard. I don't think he's a thumper. You know, people think, you know, hey, he's 241. They kind of, they kind of walk this guy into, oh, maybe he's not that good of an athlete. I think he's a better athlete than people think. And he can excel in all three downs. I think this is someone where if you want a third linebacker, if you want a third Sam linebacker, and you say, I want to replace A.J. Klein, but I don't want to be completely screwed in coverage. I want him to have some of that. I think Logan Wilson's a guy. There you have it, Bruce exclusive. You re- released a podcast yesterday and today. Uh, tell us what we can find on uh, this week of Nick and Nolan, and where are you on the Twitter? So I am at Bruce exclusive on Twitter, and Nick and I yesterday and today dropped two different pods, the first one of which is based on the new additions to the defensive line room and how the defensive line room will look different in 2020 than it did in 2019. And then today, we released kind of a labor of love for me. It was a podcast called The Plan, and it was about Brandon Bean's step-by-step process from the time he got here to now on how he rebuilt the Bills. How did we go from being historically untalented to being someone I literally just called Super Bowl-level talent? How did that happen? And so... That was a, a really good subject for us. I wrote a piece about it on buffalorumblings.com too, and I really enjoyed it. So, But I also really enjoyed doing this with you guys, so thank you so much for having me. That was Bruce Exclusive. Find him on Twitter, at Bruce Exclusive. Bailing us out in a pinch. Did a great job. There's a great conversation about the linebackers you can find in this year's draft class. Guys, next week we're going to be back with an offensive line draft. We're going to do our offensive line draft preview featuring Russell Brown of CoverOne.net. We're going to have a lot. We're going to have a lot to talk about. But ultimately, Chris, I'm just happy I got out of the house tonight. Yeah, this is like uh, what we're like one week into quarantining. I mean, I don't know about you, but the worst part about this whole like New York State shutdown can't get a haircut. Oh, so your mohawk is just going to continue to get worse? Well, the sides are growing in. <laughs> you could shave it. No, I no, I I let a professional do that. Wuss. <laughs> Folks, thank you for showing up tonight. Ultimately, I know that these are these are rough times. I know last week I tried to leave you on a positive note. I'm going to try to do the same this week. Look. I know there's a lot of people out there with anxiety, with worry about what's, what's going to happen. Ultimately, in life, you can only control what you can fear. Fear is a thing. And I think Mike Tyson said it best. Fear is like fire. If you can control it, it can cook for you. And if you can let it run wild, it'll burn down your house, it'll destroy you, it'll ruin everything around you. So with that said, 
I think in times like this, it's 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 almost like monkey bars, Chris. You control what you can control. There's a lot going on in the world that we have no power over. But at the same time, there's small things. There's little things. The things on a day-to-day basis that you can wrap your hands around and say, hey, I have control over this. Chris, I'm going to start running. Do I look like a jogger to you? Now, you look like you somebody that would probably be good at jumping over a wall. <laughs> God, I hate you. But ultimately, I'm going to start running. Not because I want to, but because I feel like that's one thing I can do to just get this. Like, I, I thrive on, I try to be, you know, I try to, physical activity, something I thrive on. Well, that's something I can control. And so I'm going to go outside of my comfort zone and I'm going to do something to get my hands around that. Like I said, it's like monkey bars. When you look at your life and you have, you have anxiety, you might have fear about the current situation, whether it's economic, whether it's health, whether it's, whether it's family related, it doesn't matter whether it's relationship related. You can only control what you can control. But you get your hands around those things. And when you do, you find that it's easier to get your hand around the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it's a chain reaction in which you find it. Chris, it provides a level of comfort. When you start just getting control of what you can and figuring out what you can't, it almost brings you a sense of peace. It's where I'm at. And I'm hoping that some of our listeners out there can at least take that. I hope you're all doing well. We wish the best for you. Chris, like we said last week, we Gord Downey ended every single show. We're going to end every single podcast from here on out until this whole thing is over. Be good to each other and drive the fucking speed limit. Got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. Big thank you to Bruce Nolan. This has been the Rock Pal Report.